good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, down to verse 14. About a month ago, I found out I was preaching this passage, and as is my custom, I read it to my wife, Sarah. And I said something to the effect of, after I read it, I said, you know, Lawson's gotten to preach on John 17 for six weeks. In his words, sovereignty praying to sovereignty. And he gave me the arrest of Jesus. And Sarah looked back at me and she said, is it not all inspired? And so I just don't complain to her anymore. But I have been doubly convicted um, because not only was she correct, um, but this passage this week has just hit me like a ton of bricks. So if you have your Bibles, John 18, will you stand with me as we read John 18, 1 to 14. These words were given by inspiration of God. They're the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And this is it, John 18, 1 to 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having cured a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, would you give us eyes to see? I recognize this morning that, that I have nothing to say unless it has come from you. And I realize this morning that there is weight in this passage that is far greater for, than any of us can understand. But God, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We pray that you would comfort us from your word as we know that you can and do. We pray that you would convict us from your word. May we, may we look to Christ. May we see Christ as glorious. And may you use your word this week as we leave here and as we live our lives that we would seek in all that we do to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, we know we can only pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in the sentence this morning is kind of the sermon in a command. And it's this, look to Christ, the one who has sovereignly fulfilled the task for which he came. Look to Christ, the one who sovereignly fulfilled the task for which he came. And we've arrived this morning in John chapter 18 at, at somewhat of a threshold. There's this, this shift, this change that's happening in the book of John. We've, we've exited this discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples in this prayer. We move into a narrative, and the narrative that we know is the narrative of the cross. And we're seeing here in John 18 and following this um, this narrative of Jesus being arrested and going to the cross and dying and raising from the dead. And we've just left John 17. We have this picture, like I said earlier, of sovereignty praying to sovereignty, as Lawson said. And I think often we look at passages of Scripture like this and we say something to the effect of, Look to Christ, fix your eyes on Christ. But I think in this passage, John chapter 18, there is, there is plentiful examples of what that actually means in our lives. And so as we've made this switch, we kind of made the switch from teaching and prayer to this genre of narrative, of story. And so we're, we're making this switch to understanding that this is now, for the rest of the book really, is this, this recounting of what has happened and what is happening as Jesus is being led to the cross. And anytime we look at a story, I think our temptation is to look at the characters. And I would say that that's actually what I started to do. As I started to look at John chapter 18, I was looking at, at, at what Jesus was doing, but not only that, at what Judas was doing and at what these, uh, this band of soldiers, the Scripture says, is doing and what Peter is doing. And there's all of these characters that seem to be fitting together, but John doesn't seem interested in letting us know a ton about a lot of characters. John seems interested in having one singular focus. He's really only interested in us looking at one character, and that's the character. He wants us to look to Christ. And as, as we read this passage and as we look at it, as we look to Christ, it becomes so much more clear that there is, there is one singular focus here, that we look to Christ, the one who sovereignly fulfilled the task 
for which he came. And so that's what I want to do this morning is just look to Christ. And so the first thing that I want us to do is I want us to see his actions. Look at verse 2. Actually, verse 1, sorry. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Christ sovereignly went to the place where he knew, the exact place where he knew his betrayer would find him. Christ went to the exact place where he knew that his betrayer would find him. After this beautiful prayer that we just studied in John chapter 17, Jesus leads his disciples into what John calls a garden. We know from other passages in Scripture that this is the Mount of Olives. He's led them in, into this place. And Jesus went to pray. We know that from parallel accounts. And some would say, well, maybe Jesus went to hide there. Maybe Jesus went, to, um, went there because it was comforting to him. But what we see in John chapter 18 is that Jesus went there for the purpose that Judas knew where it was and he knew he would be there. And along with that, I think we have to look at Judas and what he does because there's this interesting comparison we have between Christ and Judas. In, chapter, in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him. We knew this was going to happen. John 13, 21 promises that it would happen. So Judas is going to betray him, and he comes, but he comes with lanterns, torches, and weapons. He's not being discreet about what he's doing. They were coming as if they were going to take a thief, as if they were going to take a criminal, as if they were going to take someone who is a danger to society. They come with a band of soldiers and lanterns and torches and weapons, and yet they come in the cover of night so that the Jews wouldn't be out of sorts. They bring a band of soldiers, and this is, this is a strange set of words, a band of soldiers. Most commentators believe that it's, it's some Roman and some Jewish, that there's kind of this mixture, this conglomeration, and, and not only a band of soldiers, but they bring some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and in a sense, the whole world, in a sense, this known world has all come together. It's come together against Jesus to arrest him. But I want to ask a question of verses 1 to 3, and the question is, what kind of picture is John trying to paint? Because we have four versions of this story. We have one in Matthew, we have one in Mark, we have one in Luke, and we have one here. And John's version is strikingly different from the other three. In John's version, we don't see specificity about where Jesus is. It doesn't say the Mount of Olives. It doesn't say Gethsemane. In John's version, as we consult parallel passages, we see that John is building an argument. John has placed things in this section and left things out for a purpose. He's painting a picture here. And what is that picture that he's painting? He's painting a picture of sovereignty. He's painting a picture here in John chapter 18 
of sovereignty, of unrelenting obedience, of faithful love for the Father, of perfect obedience. Even here at this difficult point, at this seemingly totally sorrowful moment, he's painting a picture of Jesus' sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, one commentator says, nothing of sighing or beating the breast, nothing of sorrow unto death, nothing of sweating as if it were drops of blood, nothing of agonizing before the will of God is to be found in the evangelist's account of the night of the arrest. John leaves out all of those things. John leaves out, if there's any other way, may this cut pass from me. John leaves out that he was sweating like drops of blood. Why would he leave those things out? Why does he leave out the word Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives? It's because John is painting this picture that Christ is in control. One commentator even said, who arrested who? This picture we have in John 18 is is not of Jesus who is out of control. Christ who is in complete control. This group of people, which some commentators believe could be even 600 men who have come to arrest Jesus, are here and they've arrived and Jesus is still in control. I think this causes us to look back through the book of John because Jesus has been saying this the entire time. In John chapter 7, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Or then in in John 8, after Jesus had told the Jews that they actually didn't know the Father, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Well, guess what? The hour has come. And Jesus is going willingly. In the face of 600 men, he is not not afraid. He's not putting up a fight. He's going willingly. We have to ask the question, though, is John trying to hide things from us? Is John giving us a biased account? That's not the case. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, it says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John here is mounting this argument. Jesus Christ is in control in this situation. And I think in this moment, we're tempted to look at Judas We're tempted to look at a band of soldiers. We're tempted to look at the religious leaders who who have come. But John is distinctly directing our gaze at Christ. He says, look to Christ. The hour has come. The cross is coming. And he goes willingly. But we don't just see his actions. I think we hear his words in verse 4 to 7. If you look at verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. See, Christ sovereignly here, 
he said the exact words that would lead him to the cross. He said the exact words that would lead him to the cross. He came to the place where he knew that his, the person who would betray him and arrest him would be. He came to that place willingly and he said the words that he knew would lead him to the cross. In the midst of 600 people, Christ is leading the conversation. He says, whom do you seek? He's not hiding. He hasn't come to this garden to hide out, to wait for the morning. He has come willingly. He walks out and he says, whom do you seek? And the scripture even is clear to say to us in verse 4, he did that knowing all that would happen to him, planning all that would happen to him. He's inviting himself to be betrayed. He's inviting himself to be arrested. Why? Because the cross was coming, and his time had come. His hour had come. Then he says something else. He says, whom do you seek? He asks them the question. They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, if you've been with us as we studied John, then you, you may have a red flag going off in your mind, and that the Greek isn't I am he. It's, it's I am. It's ego me. Now, some scholars disagree on what Jesus actually means here because it could be as simple as Jesus saying, yeah, I'm Jesus from Nazareth. That's me. But also, the same phrase present here, ego me, is the same phrase that's present in the I am statements, the same phrase that we connect to Exodus, to the burning bush, to Yahweh, disclosing himself to Moses. And so we ask the question, which is it? Well, I think John has given us plenty of proof that it's probably both. That Jesus says, yes, that is me. I am Jesus of Nazareth. But even more than that, here's one more time. I'm just going to tell you, I am. That I am divine. I am God. He's reminding the Jews and now the Romans one last time. And really, not one last time, but the beginning of one last time, that he is divine. Let's be honest, nothing seems to bother the Jews more than Jesus telling them that he, he is the I am. In chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And six verses later, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In chapter 10, when he said, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd, Scripture says there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And then in John 11, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, the religious leaders mounted a plot to kill both he and Lazarus. The Jews were not happy with Jesus reminding them of who he was. And you would think in the presence of 600 of them, maybe one of us would say, well, you know, I know I said that stuff, but I didn't actually mean that. Jesus, he says, 
I am. And what happens when he says it? I love this. This is great because what does this mean? Who knows? But look what, it, what happens. It says in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus tells them who he is and they fall to the ground. Now, does that mean they fell in worship? I doubt it because they still arrested him. Does it mean they fell down in agony because they realized what they were doing? I doubt it because they still arrested him. But could it mean that they literally fell to the ground as the result of the sheer power of Christ? Yeah, good. He says, I am and they fell to the ground. And whatever Jesus meant by go a me, I think both things that he was saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, but also I am God. Whatever he meant by those things, we know that he had to repeat himself because the men he was talking to were incapacitated by that phrase. Something happened. Calvin says he replies mildly that he is the person whom they seek, and yet, as if they had been struck down by a violent tempest, or rather by a thunderbolt, he lays them prostrate on the ground. There was no want of power in him, therefore to restrain their hands if he had thought proper, but he wished to obey his father. And even still, we see in this repetition, Jesus has not backed down. He's not coward. He's not editorialized his earlier statements. He's not changing his story. He's doubling down. He says it twice. Not only did he repeat it here, you can look all through the book of John to where he said it over and over and over and over again. Rody Bauckham popularized the phrase, quote, weak, sissified Jesus, talking about our tendency, our modern tendency to overemphasize Jesus' weakness, to overemphasize the fact that Jesus is, is meek and mild. And I think John is putting to rest any of those tendencies that we should have. The picture that we have of Jesus here from John is not a weak, sissified Jesus who is unwilling and frail, but John here has presented Christ, strong, steadfast, ready for the task in front of him. So we've seen it in his actions. We've seen it in his words. John has not depicted Jesus as unwilling. He's not depicted Jesus as unable to complete the task, but rather full of power ready to take it on. And thus, the reminder, we look to Christ. His hour has come. The cross is coming. And he goes willingly. But the beautiful, beautiful part of this passage is it's still not over. In verse 8, it says, Jesus answered again for the third time, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. 
Christ sovereignly kept his disciples to the end. And in some ways, this seems like it's too easy. That surely this can't be the fulfillment of chapter 17, verse 12. Which in Jesus, in praying to the Father, says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It almost seems strange that, is it really this easy? Is this what he is saying, that by saying, just take me and not these other men, that he is fulfilling the prophecy that he hasn't lost one of those whom he gave? That's what it would seem. Interestingly enough, deleted from this section is the part about Judas, because Judas has actually fulfilled that prophecy in himself. That not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There he is standing with 600 possibly men to arrest Jesus. He's fulfilled that prophecy. But Jesus has fulfilled something great in this pardoning of the disciples, if you want to view it that way, from these men who have come. Because if there's 600, or who knows how many, a lot, of these men, who is the one commanding the conversation? Not the one with numbers. Not the one who is, if you're, if you're an onlooker looking on, the one who has more behind him. Jesus says, if, if you came looking for me, take me and let these other men go. Thus fulfilling the prophecy. But this physical fulfillment of the prophecy is really just a shadow of the deliverance that Jesus is providing for his disciples. Because Jesus is, in fact, the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who secures the salvation of the sheep. The physical deliverance that he just secured is, is only a shadow of the spiritual deliverance that he has secured for all his sheep. In John 10, this passage is just so glorious, and it fits right here in John 18, verses 11 through 18. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What Jesus said in John 10, here we are. It didn't really matter how many men had come to the garden. He had the authority to lay his life down. No one takes his life. No one takes his sheep. And we see here this this moment, this moment of, of serious tenseness. They're here. They've come to arrest him. And this is the moment where, is, is it true that no one takes his life? Yes. No one takes his life. No one takes his sheep. We look to Christ. 
We look to Christ because his hour has come. The cross is coming and he goes willingly. And yet it still keeps going. In verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now we see some of this motivation. Christ went to the cross for the glory of the Father. This next line, what, G- what Peter does is, the best way that I can describe it is, 2,000 years later, is it's comically tragic, as much of what Peter does is. It's comically tragic. Because Peter is feeling all of these emotions. He sees these men. By the way, a lot of men. And he's, he's like, I love Jesus. I need to do something about this. And so he pulls out his dagger or his knife or his sword, and he cuts off this guy's ear. And it's easy for us to think comically about it now, but in that moment, there are, there are plenty of movie scenes that illustrate this for us. That moment where everybody's got weapons pointed at everybody. And Peter says, I need to defend Jesus. Let me strike this guy. And this line, this action of Peter is pretty in line with what he does. In chapter 13, verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Feel the tension here. Peter is still convinced. Peter is still convinced that he can do something to lay his life down for Christ. He hasn't figured out yet that he, he needs Christ to lay his life down for him. And he says, in the same line of thought, he takes his sword and cuts off this servant's ear. In many ways, Peter's act of service in his mind, his act of service, what he thought was going to, to help the cause of Christ, was actually completely contrary to what Christ was trying to do. One commentator says, Peter showed how far he was even now from understanding either the situation or the mind of Jesus. But I think there's an application for us here because how often are we like Peter? How often are we this way? God's plan is bigger than anything we can imagine. And instead of seeing this big trillions of years view of God's kingdom and God's plan, we, we can dwell on minuscule things. We can look around at those who spurn Christ and we respond in anger as if we could defend Christ, as if he needed us to defend him rather than acting in compassion and obedience to the Father. Because that's the contrast we see here. Peter acts in rage. He acts in fear. And yet Christ acts in total obedience to the Father. 
Arkant Hughes said, Gethsemane was not a tragedy. Behind human tragedy stands the benevolent and wise purpose of the Lord of human history. We, we believe that God's kingdom and God's plan is bigger than the here and now. It's bigger than what we look around and see. And Christ responds to Peter in much the same way that he responded to him in chapter 13. In verse 11, he says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Notice the contrast here. Jesus says, Shall I not drink or finish, complete, consume the cup? What is, what is this cup? It's God's wrath for the sins of his people. Shall I not consume that cup? Shall I not drink all of that cup that the Father has given me? Peter, do you not understand that you're not helping this? That this is, this is what I came to do? But notice Christ does not look at it from this human perspective that maybe Peter is looking at it from. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus doesn't represent, reprimand Peter from this, this human view of the cross, but rather this divine view of the cross that, that the cup had to be drunk, that God's glory is at stake. This isn't just a moment in time. This is, this is for all moments in time. That God's glory is at stake. How can God be both the just and the justifier if, if this cup he has given me is not drunk? Because we know, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What kind of God can pass over sins without payment? What kind of justice is that? How can God forgive sinners? His son drank the cup of his wrath. glory in this contrast, Peter failed. Peter thought he was helping in his anger and in his rage. He failed, and yet Christ was faithful. When we look to Peter, we see a fearful, angry response to this evil attack, and yet we don't look to Peter. We look to Christ. His hour has come, the cross is coming, and he goes willingly we look at verse 12, what happens? We know from parallel accounts that Jesus touched the man's ear and his ear was restored. And then John tells us how this interaction ends in verse 12. He says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So when we look to Christ, we, we trust in his sovereignty. Christ sovereignly experienced the bondage of these chains in order ultimately to release us from our bondage to sin. This is the moment that Jesus had warned them about 
In John 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. This is the beginning. This is happening. Jesus, Jesus has warned them, I'm going to go away. And this is the start of that. And here they are. And, and Jesus is being carried away in chains. This is the moment that they had been warned about, the height of sorrow. But notice again, Jesus is not mentioned having any fight about him in verses 12 and 13. He hasn't resisted. How can we look to Jesus bound in chains, being carried through the streets of Jerusalem and have joy? The same way we look at a bruised heel knowing that there will be a crushed head. The same way that we look at a bloody cross knowing that there will be an empty tomb. The same way we look at the world coming together against the sun knowing that one day there will be people from all tribes and tongues and nations around the throne. Doesn't our relationship with Christ have a way of making us look not at the world around us, not at what is happening to us, but to look to Christ? Because when we look around, we can feel hopeless and we can feel a lot of those emotions that Peter is feeling. We can see the the anger and the sadness. But when we look to Christ, when we look at him, and we see his plan, we see his glory, his sovereignty, his plan unfolding, his kingdom building, then we can have hope. We have hope even in the already not yet, even in this moment where things have not all turned out yet. I think when we, we look at our present circumstances, when we look at the immediate things around us, it's easy for us to be tempted toward hopelessness. But when we look to Christ, we realize that his hour, even in John 18, has come. That he has gone willingly. Then we can rejoice. Look at verse 14. I love this because John is, is bringing up something that was already a win. He's just kind of bringing it back to our attention. He says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is a reminder of John 11, verses 48 to 53. And, and the religious leaders of the Jews are talking and and it says, if we, let, if we let him go on like this, that's talking about Jesus, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I just want to read that part again. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John is reminding us here, He's reminding us of this glorious truth that the Jewish establishment wanted nothing more than to kill Jesus. 
And the Father used those very same actions to provide salvation for all of his sheep. They wanted nothing more than to get rid of Jesus. And, and, and we can rejoice and be glad because by doing that, he, he provided salvation for us. And as we enter into this understanding of the crucifixion, as we look to all of the things that Christ will go through in these next few verses and chapters, we can have hope because the cross was coming. His time had come. The disciples were afraid. Judas was greedy and evil. The religious leaders were filled with hatred Peter was defensive and arrogant, but Christ was sovereign, and we look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, even now, I confess that it's easy to look around. It's easy to focus on the minuscule things around me, it's easier than to look to Christ. And yet we realized this morning, Father, that that is our hope, looking to Christ, that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy us. There's nothing in this world that can save us. There's no action that we could do that could bring ourselves to you. Just as Romans has said, we, we know that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet we can be justified by your grace. We know that Jesus lived a perfect life. We know that he, he obeyed perfectly. We know that he accomplished perfect righteousness that we couldn't accomplish. We know that he died as a propitiation, as a sacrifice that, that took our place, that he stood in our place and didn't stay dead, but rose from the dead so that we can be steadfast and immovable, abounding in, in this work. God, I pray that we would be reminded to look to Christ, that we would see that he was not arrested because he was weak or because he was unable. But rather we know that he, he went to the cross willingly for your glory. He went to the cross not because he was dragged there. Father, we pray that you remind us of that. This week as we live our lives, as we encounter difficulty, as we don't understand, as we look at the world around us, help us not to be tempted toward anger or hatred. Help us to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray this morning if there's someone here who does not have a relationship with Christ, who's never repented of their sin and trusted in his perfect life and death, to take their place. I pray that they'd find somebody afterward and, and ask those questions, talk to someone about that. We pray that you would save today, that you would use your word to bring someone from death to life.
We thank you for this truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, every week we, we believe that the Word of God uh, demands a response from us, uh, whether that response is to stand and sing, to look to Christ uh, through, through song, uh, whether it's to sit and pray or to read uh, His Word, or whether it's to talk uh, to Lawson in the back, he'll be in the back. Uh, whatever it is, I just invite you to respond.